Hi, everybody. This is J.R. Parker. I'm the progenitor of this podcast, and I guess the engineer, producer, or whatever. This is basically our last episode, although we are going to talk about Mark Frost's next book at some point in the future. So I wanted to provide just a little bit of meta-commentary on the episode for reasons that will become clearer later. Uh, well, I want to start with our intro music on this episode, which is the song Car by Built to Spill. It's a great song, and I think there's some clues in the lyrics as to why I picked it. But foremost is the line, I want to see movies of my dreams, which is what David Lynch does better than anybody out there. At least anybody that I can think of. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode, and I hope that you've enjoyed the podcast. Thanks. You get the car, I'll get the night off you'll get the chance to take the world apart and figure out how it works don't let me know what you find out i need a car you need a guide who needs a map if i don't die or worse i'm gonna Best I'll be asleep when you get back. I wanna see it when you find out what comet stars and moons are all about. Wanna see their faces turn to backs of heads and slowly get smaller. Wanna see it now. Wanna see. for episode 19 of Wrapped in Podcast. We have finally recapped every single episode, 
every single part of Twin Peaks to return. Uh, we're going to now the four of us will sit and talk about our kind of big picture thoughts. Some of us have grand theories. Some of us have questions. Some of us are still evolving in our understanding. This isn't the end of the podcast because I'm sure we're going to want to talk about Mark Frost's book, The Final Dossier, which comes out on October 31st, if I understand correctly. Uh, at that point, we're going to revisit the show and revisit some of our thoughts about it. But now I'm just going to kind of open up the floor uh, to our concluding thoughts about Twin Peaks The Return. Um, I don't really have a lot to say other than to say that I am eternally grateful for the fact that this exists. Uh, nothing I've ever watched on television has ever excited me as much as Twin Peaks. Dating back to the early 90s and you know, continuing on to 2017. Uh, uh, <clears throat> and I've just... Yeah, nothing. Nothing compares to it. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I'm I'm kind of awestruck and uh, dumbstruck by the whole thing. Uh, but you know, I, I I do have some theories, and we're going to talk about them, and we'll interrogate each other about them tonight in this particular episode. So, uh, Ken, do you want to start with uh, some of your concluding thoughts? Well, I can start by posing a question, which I think could be useful. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to what people think Dale Cooper's final, if, if this is all of Twin Peaks, if this is all that we're going to get, right? Um, is Dale Cooper a hero, fundamentally? Does he bring more good into the world or, or take more good out of it? What do people think? I think Dale Cooper is doomed. <laughs> I think he was doomed from the beginning, uh, and and largely this is based on my reading of My Life, My Tapes, the autobiography. Mm. Uh, it's been pointed out that in the course of his life, pre-Twin Peaks, 14 different people die, several of them under uh, mysterious circumstances. Not that he ever is involved with their killing, uh, but he, you know, there, there's this one scene in the book where he goes down to, I think, the Caribbean to find uh, a teach on vacation to find the person who taught Wyndham Earl how to play chess. And this person refuses to teach uh, Dale because he looks at him and says, there's death in your face. Um, I, 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 you know, it, does that mean he's good or bad? I don't know. I, I really don't think any of that is is attributable to his own actions or his choices uh clearly in season two we see him make choices that are questionable he obviously did not have you know he had fear when he came into the black lodge which resulted in mr c yeah and, and then 25 years of suffering for people that encountered mr c and 25 years of apparently very intense suffering by audrey um just a, just an awful lot of misery right uh coming out of what seemed to be a well-intentioned quest originally you know the the solving of laura's murder and then dealing with the judy black lodge windham earl stuff I, I don't think that david lynch is particularly interested in heroes who are perfect or heroes who are, you know, unassailable. And, and, and I think that Dale Cooper, we all love Dale Cooper. Uh, part of us want to be Dale Cooper. Uh, and his childlike wonder, uh, and his inherent goodness, and his desire to do the right thing, and his inherent decency as a person. 
Yeah. But uh, uh, his history is complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so do you think his tragic flaw then is just overreaching? Like, is it all two birds, one stone, basically? That, you know, in the in the return, he overreaches by trying to solve evil itself or by trying to reverse the um, killing of Laura Palmer entirely, acting like it never happened. And in the original series, his flaw is that he tries to um, dive into the lodges without being fully prepared. Right. Overreach. Well, I, I think you're assuming a bit there, Ken, because I'm not sure that he was unsuccessful and uh, in, in terms of getting rid of Judy uh, or, or handling Judy or obliterating Judy. We honestly don't know. We, we won't know. I, I agree with you as to season two, as, as to the, the result of him going into the Black Lodge, fundamentally representing a mistake or failure on his part. Did he fail in the return? I don't think so. Uh, I honestly tend to agree with some view that his conversation at the beginning of part one with the fireman takes place actually at the end of all that we've seen. That that isn't so much as the fireman giving him instructions that we see him carry out in the show as it is him helping him transfer to the next place that he's going to be understanding what it is that he's done so that he doesn't completely lose himself. I was going to say that, yeah, I think he is a flawed hero. And I think um, part of what the show seems to be about is about his, I guess, spiritual education. Uh, And one of the things I found very fascinating in this question of doing good, doing evil, you know, consciousness, unconsciousness, it seems like Wayne Cooper was in the Dougie state uh, this season, he was more successful in bringing joy, goodness, uh, positive results for the, almost everyone who came into contact with him than he was after he became original recipe, you know, Dale Cooper, as we were calling him in episode, you know, 15 and, and 16 on. Um, and I thought that, and I still haven't quite untangled what to do with that. <laughs> uh, whether, whether Lynch represent, uh, prefers some sort of, you know, glassy-eyed, unconscious state, the, the Dougie state, you know, perhaps you can do more good that way. Uh, but I do, I did, I do, I do still feel as I did, uh, as I, you know, made vigorous defenses of, of Dougie throughout the season that, uh, being Dougie, uh, and playing that role, uh, and, you know, it, it, it was essential to, to what Cooper had to learn. Uh, and, and I, and I also sort of wondered if, you're right about Mr. C getting out and just kind of run, you know, wreaking havoc for 25 years as a result of, of Coop's failure uh, in the lodge. But we don't really know, you know, uh, so much of what we know about the white lodge and the black lodge kind of comes from Hawk's, you know, monologue about them. Uh, and we don't really get a sense of how many people actually, you know, at least mortal souls when they go into the lodges, uh, especially the black lodge, how many of them actually pass that test or if it's something that might take, lifetimes you know uh to to master uh, and to pass through so but yeah i that's some of what i thought about but definitely and i I would probably agree with you ken that if he does have a flaw it is this tendency to overreach and i think it also has something to do with his um i guess objectification of women uh on some level uh, denial of their agency uh so yeah, yeah and this desire to always save them no matter what even when it might not necessarily be his place or be 
possible or necessary for him to do yeah, so. Even when they don't want to be saved, like Laura, when he goes right. back in time in the woods. I mean, Jeff, on the Dougie front, it's interesting that, you know, some of the things we really like about original Cooper and some of the things that are successful about Dougie seem to match David Lynch's real life persona, right? He's, he's chosen to present himself to the world as kind of a wide-eyed naive. Like his, his whole biography is like Eagle Scout, Missoula, Montana, right? And everybody remarks that the first thing you notice when you meet him is how gung-ho he is about coffee and how aw shucks G. Willikers he is about the world. So it's it's neat that the this hero like first he presented as a hero that had those qualities and was like a hard nosed FBI agent. And then uh when he put that hero in a position to fail, he presented us with another version that was even more wide eyed and naive. Well and, Jimmy and Stewart I, from Mars. Yeah. 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 And I think that I think that has a lot to to do with it. And again the description that I saw of him at uh was uh, at the time was that he was, you know, a boy scout leading a little old lady across the street in hell. Uh and and I think it's a case more of of, you know, curiosity killed the cat. I mean it obviously that uh that curiosity helps him a great deal as as a detective, as an investigator. And and but it's it also really going all the way back to uh Lynch's first work with Kyle McLaughlin in Blue Velvet, um, the character of Jeffrey Beaumont. You know, he has that curiosity about things that really aren't any of his business, and pursuing them and trying to find out about them is what leads him into no end of trouble. And and we see that in a more condensed version in Blue Velvet, but we really see that uh, over the course of Twin Peaks as a series. You know, we get sort of amusing elements of it uh, in him, you know, making tapes to Diane, talking about, you know, the, it continues to trouble me. Who really killed, pulled the trigger on JFK? Uh, and, and we see it in the comments that he makes to Harry uh, and Ed about their body language and him being able to tell from their reactions uh, that they're having relationships with uh, Josie and with Norma, uh, respectively, which are things that they're trying to keep quiet and things that really aren't any of his concern and have nothing to do with this murder mystery that he's investigating. And of course, when he hears these things from Briggs and from Deputy Hawk about the lodges, he's like, oh, I want to I hear more about that and and that leads him kind of headlong into these foolish decisions yeah part of it is feeling the desire to go and save these women but he really wants to know about this stuff uh even though it leads him into corners that that aren't really his concern you know think about the interrogation of leo johnson he go they go out to see him and he says is leo short for leonard and Leo looks at him and says, is that a question? And, and there are a lot of Dale Cooper questions that fall into that category. What the hell are you asking him that for? Um, and, and, and because of that constant curiosity, that constant questing for knowledge, there is simultaneously this sense of certainty about things he really shouldn't be so certain about. Ken, you talked about this before, about is he being confident and is his confidence misplaced? Uh, but also it produces that that sense of, okay, there's always another question after this. You know, if JR is right and we see the scene we see at the very beginning actually occurs at the very end when he goes to see the fireman and the fireman says it is in our house now which may very well mean Judy has been trapped and she's in that cage that we saw Doppelcooper in and we got her you know this may be a good thing not a bad thing mm. agent cooper's response is it is, and he says it with an inflection that it's not at all clear whether he's making a definitive statement of fact 
or he's expressing uncertainty about what he's being told that we see mirrored in part 18 with the evolved arm saying to him, is it the girl who lived down the lane? Is it? You know, like we want to put this question to you. and, And I think when push comes to shove, Cooper's a little hesitant to give that definitive answer, maybe because he is truly this manifestation of of David Lynch's sense of wonder. You know, it goes back to the Saturday Night Live sketch you talked about. about I don't really want to solve this mystery. I don't really want to know the answer, but I got to keep trying to find out. And it's that push-pull that leads Dale Cooper into danger. Yeah, that's great. There's a genre critique in there too, Kyle, I think. Like, if all film is voyeurism, then uh, the murder mystery really is like the domain of the busybody even more so, right? That like the the pleasures you get from seeing a Sherlock Holmes type detective solve a crime by piecing together all the clues about people's motivations and whereabouts and alibis and backgrounds and salacious histories are the pleasures of seeing people's lives dissected. <laughs> right? For the yeah. purposes of, of your entertainment. And it makes a certain amount of sense, as I think about it, that something like Murder, She Wrote or Columbo would, would appeal to like, you know, the stereotypical gossipy aunt or something on your block, right? Like, I just, I really want to know what's going on. What's, what, what are all the seamy little desires in the underbelly of, uh, of Twin Peaks? Like, a lot of that stuff is really like Trip go, being run off the road into a ditch and that it just is completely tangential. It's completely peripheral to what's going on with uh, with Laura Palmer's mystery. It probably does isn't relevant at all. And he dove headlong into all of it. You know, the extra legal bookhouse boys. I can recall being the first time that I was like, "Why is the FBI guy doing this?" You know? Right. Like, yeah. So, so then, Ken, in relation to that, the the question that I would that I would put is. Um, does the does the Big Bang Theory criticism of Raiders of the Lost Ark also apply to Twin Peaks? You know, uh, uh, the the character oddly because you emphasize the the name Blossom in the uh, uh, the Pear Blossom Motel. It it uh, made me think about the fact that of course the the actress uh, Mayim Bialik is most famous for starring in Blossom, and she's the one who put out this theory that if Indiana Jones had done nothing in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders would have turned out exactly the same. He had no impact on the outcome. The Nazis would have found the Ark. They would have opened it. They would have been destroyed by it. And him being there had nothing to do with it. Now, in some sense, Cooper has to matter because his entrapment in the White Lodge, the Black Lodge, is what lets Doppel Cooper get out into the world. But aside from that, is he really affecting any outcomes? I mean, I think we see that that kind of brought to the forefront with this idea of him going back in time to stop Laura Palmer's murder. But even that seemingly doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't end Laura's suffering. It doesn't cause the Palmer house to cease to be this intersection of Garmin Bosia. And, and that's really the ultimate achievement on his part, you would think, that would cure everything. And it appears to have cured absolutely nothing, particularly if JR is right that all the screaming, whooshing, disappearing Lauras are the same event occurring simultaneously across multiple uh, planes of reality. You know, maybe, maybe he's not a hero and maybe he doesn't even really matter in the grand scheme of things. 
Well, I think you could call that the Mike Hammer, Gordon Cole theory as easily as the uh, Big Bang Theory, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? The the completely ineffectual detective theory. Um, but I think he matters too much, and that's the problem. He he inter- interferes too much where he shouldn't. But I'll I'll let Jr. talk. Well, no, I mean speaking of interference, I mean remember that Coop told Laura not to take the ring, right? But she did. Yeah, and. And I think we have to what whatever we think about what happened in the return, that's a fundamental point. And I honestly don't even still know what to make of it. And I, I've come around to, yeah, I've changed my mind a lot on that. Uh and then, you know, I watched Firewalk with me, as I said, a few weeks ago. I got to see it on uh, the big screen for like a twenty fifth anniversary screening of it. And my sense of it is that it is Cooper's giving her bad advice, you know, and he he's at a point in the lodge where he doesn't, I guess, understand uh, everything entirely yet, uh, or wherever he is, you know, but yeah, I think there, cause, well, maybe he, did, again, he wanted to save her. He wanted to keep her from dying when in reality, it seems like my understanding of, of the ring was Laura took it and then, you know, wore it. And, and, and then that is kept Bob from possessing her and led Bob right. to murder her. But on some level, this was a necessary sacrifice and a major, you know, kind of, uh, you know, um, damage done, I guess, to Bob or the Lodge's plans for her. Well, and, and, and isn't it interesting in light of what then happens to Cooper, uh, who then sees his doppelganger released out into the world, you know, with Bob, with him every step of the way throughout these 25 years that, you know, he winds up inadvertently uh, making the choice that he advised Laura to make. And you have to wonder, looking back on it, would would he do that again, knowing what Doppelcooper did to Audrey, knowing what Doppelcooper did to Diane? Would he make the same choice? Would he tell Laura to make the same choice? Or would he say, look, if it's your life, you get to make this decision. You'd think he would have learned something in those 25 years. But the implication from him being willing to go back to February 23rd, 1989, to save her on a night she chose not to be saved, uh, indicates that he hasn't really learned much at all in that time. Right. Well, well I think that, I think that, I think you guys are overstating Coop's return to 1989. I, I don't. I, I think there's a, a tenable theory that Coop is not going back to 1989 to save Laura Palmer from being murdered. He's going back to 1989 to get Laura Palmer to put her into a pocket universe that we see in the dreary parts of part 18 to draw Judy. This is a a trap, a a cage that they've created uh, in part 18 in this pocket universe of fucking Odessa to attract Judy. She's attracted there by Coop's uh, weird sex magic ritual with Diane that draws Judy into that space uh, at the same time that he goes to 1989 and tries to get Laura to go with him uh, as I think he maybe knew would happen because it didn't seem that shocked by what happens as Laura reaches out to his hand and she disappears. uh, Judy is expressing her power uh, over the world and her concern for Jude, for Laura leaving and uh, swoops her away. I think that was the plan. So, not not to keep her from dying. 
not that I, I really I I don't think that the evolved Dale, the Dale that's gone through all of this, is so naive to think that he can go back and just keep her from dying. So I like that. I'm super fascinated by that because I haven't seen that um, espoused anywhere. So I think already. I mean, I've been also trying to avoid theories. Let's let's be real. But I did a couple of searches just um, in the break between recordings here to see what people were saying. And already, Jr. That's more interesting than anything that came up quickly on, on a Google search. Like Vulture had the five best fan theories, and they were all not even theories. They were just like I watched the show. Like they were dumb. But yeah. um, but so like, that that is an interesting interpretive lens that you put out there that I haven't seen. I think that I do disagree with it um in that i read this character as more uh doomed like you originally said and as more a victim of his own hubris i think it's fascinating for example how much mr c really is like original cooper and the finale really drove that home with the richard variant that was in between the two but look at the tragic flaw of bad cooper besides the fact that he's you know super deeply evil the the super deeply evil seems to be very efficient for him it helps him get an awful lot done all right one person completely unwilling to abide by the niceties of society and its moral codes and strictures can be very effective you can end up looking like you're striding out of grand theft auto at your uh, miami house or whatever um but his tragic flaw is that he he thinks he's special he he's thinks he's different yeah, yeah he, no, he thinks that he doesn't have to go back right there's a date set for him to go back and there's a process by which he's supposed to go back to the lodge and he thinks he can avoid it by sending someone else back in his place by sending a million people out to kill dougie right he he thinks he's special and that all the regular rules don't apply to him and i think that's the fundamental problem with regular flavor original famous dale cooper also you know, I'm I'm special. I can change the time stream. I can I can stop all this from happening. When in reality, like the equilibrium always reasserts itself. You can't kill two birds with one stone. There's always going to be a, a duel, uh, a duel between good and evil, and uh, and shades of gray in between, and people being used as pawns. You can't just wipe out evil. Yeah, and I, I was going to say my initial, you know, sort of emotional reaction to the finale was similar to yours and what you're talking about now, Ken. That Cooper was making another terrible mistake. He was ma- he was rushing headlong into this other blunder, you know, and he was overreaching, over- trying to do too much. And in the same way that we're left at the end of season two with Cooper having failed this test, uh, we're left at the end of season three with a similar kind of thing. And that that's sort of what sat with me initially, along with, as I said, that kind of sense of just desolation uh, and emptiness uh, from the world that we saw uh, in the last kind of three quarters of episode 18. Uh, but I've come around to something that's similar to JR's theory. Um, and I, you know, kind of do also get the sense that Cooper as a, you know, knows what he's getting into and is sort of willingly sacrificing himself uh, and has basically become possibly at the end of 18 with that kind of what year is this, some other version of like a figure like Philip Jeffries, you know, like he, he has bought Laura, you know, as, as JR said, into this kind of alternate dimension or, or pocket universe uh, where Judy thinks she's in charge, you know, is some sort of almost emotional bomb <laughs> uh, or some, some weapon, you know, that, that can, that can be used against Judy. Uh, but in the process of doing so, and I think this kind of accounts for, you know, the, the tone of some of his scenes w- with Diane before they cross over uh, into this dimension. Um, 
he knows it will probably doom him to this kind of time loop or this sort of hell of Sisyphean repetition. And like Jeffries, who's just going, not going to know what year it is, uh, it's just going to kind of go from show up in Philadelphia, then show up, you know, uh, with scorched wallpaper behind him in Buenos Aires, and then possibly then become an orb or a tea kettle. You know, I feel like that might be what Cooper knows he's in for, but he, you know, I think if you want to see him as, you know, a more noble hero or sacrificial hero, even if he's deeply flawed, that might be what he's doing. Uh, uh, in, in sort of my somewhere down the line, uh, fourth, fifth kind of iteration of sort of intellectually trying to account for the finale. Yeah. And I think that's fair. And, you know, I'll, I'll lay the cards out of the table. This is this theory that I have about Laura being like a Garmin Bosia bomb who's absorbed so much that she can destroy Judy. Um, this is a theory that was written about by David Auerbach. Uh, the Onions AV Club wrote about it. It's not my theory. I'm not going to claim that it's mine. Um, and the other thing, you know, too, that you know, I, I will admit that the Entertainment Weekly podcast about Twin Peaks is a good one. Uh, it started after ours, I guess. We 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 were, or maybe about the same time. Uh, but they had some pretty good thoughts in their most recent episode about who is Mike and and where are his loyalties. And I thought upon that uh, also, who is you know, like what are Philip Jeffries' loyalties? Why should we assume that he's a good actor? Right. Uh, uh, we 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 have the idea that you know I originally posited that Judy was the one on the uh, communication device that. Mr. C is, is in a part two or whatever, who says, uh, you will be back with me. You know, you, you, you will come back to the lodge tomorrow and I will be with Bob again. Well, I mean, that's an interesting idea because perhaps it's Judy. Perhaps Judy wants to be with her progeny, but also maybe it's Mike. Uh, Mike is a character whose, you know, loyalty seems to be directly to Cooper as we see in the return based on his, you know, attempts to, resuscitate Dougie into original recipe coop uh, and creating the Tulpa that we uh, appears to come back to Janie E in Las Vegas. But you know, what are his motivations? Uh, he hunted, he used to hunt with Bob and, and now he doesn't, but there's some notion and this is born out in firewalk with me that it's not so much that he thinks that Bob is bad and evil and he's good, but that Bob is greedy. He's taking, keeping all the Garmin Bosia for himself. He's not sharing with the rest of the Black Lodge. And maybe, you know, some of what we're seeing here is Mike really wants Bob back. Hmm. Doesn't work out, obviously, uh, because the White Lodge, you know, doesn't give a shit about Bob. Uh, they're going to get Freddy to do his thing. Uh, but I think that's something to think about. And I think it's something to think about, you know, going with Cooper with Mike talking to Philip Jeffries, you know, this is not the white lodge. This is not the fireman. This is not Senorita Dido right. who, you know, we don't know, we don't know what her motivations are, but I mean, Philip Jeffries is, is definitely a, uh, a character who, whose loyalty is questionable. Yeah. And I think Mike's is questionable as well. And I do think you're right, Chair. There's a fundamental ambiguity to almost all the lodge denizens that we meet, except perhaps the firemen. But even then, I think of 
you know, that scene where he's like one in the same and he shows a little man from another place and the giant. And then, you know, as we've talked about before, we've questioned uh, the motivations and loyalties of, of the little man from another place who most of us, I think, uh, is is evil. Well, sure, Jeff, uh, but also Major Briggs. Major Briggs becomes a, a Lodge figure, and I think he's pretty unquestionably a force for good. I think so too. Yeah, I would agree with that. Absolutely. And then, yeah, Senior. Absolutely. I, I think. I think. I think. I think that that Major Briggs, Seniorita Dido, and the Giant the are, are forces yeah. for good. Yeah, I mean that. That I don't think that's disputable. Yeah, and maybe Kyle and, and Mayim Bialik are right, and they all would have accomplished their plan, right, whether Cooper was around or not. Back to my idea of equilibrium, that, you know, the White Lodge is out there, and its forces are powerful, and they're putting pieces into place that work like the 25-year plan brewing behind Gordon Cole, where Gordon Cole doesn't have to do anything but drink red wine. The fundamental message right, here is just drink red <laughs> wine like David Lynch and right, let, every, right, and, let and, the White and, Lodge take care of everything. And again, I'm going to credit I'm going to credit Jeff Jensen's you know EW podcast because he does talk. Oh shit! Okay, so at this point in episode 19, we had some technical problems, and so we had to stop and then start again. And we jump back in as I'm talking about the EW podcast for Twin Peaks, which I think most of us listened to and enjoyed. Uh, the other note that I have to make at this point is that we recorded 18 part two and 19 in the same evening. It was like a five hour recording session and I started drinking gin uh, somewhere in, around 18 part two and I was fine. But at some point I had a little bit too much and fell off a precipitous cliff uh, you'll get to hear that later in the episode, but I wanted to warn everybody in advance. No, I've got no problem with Jeff Jensen. I think he does a good job. Uh, he's thoughtful. This podcast is informative. I know there's a huge podcast community for Twin Peaks out there, and I kind of wandered into this as a ingenue, uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm not going to say anything bad about about their podcast because it's good. The other podcasts, not so sure about, uh, it seems like there are a lot of podcasts out there that don't actually like twin peaks or David Lynch at all. It's not clear to me why they would do this. Like, why would you spend, you know, hours and hours of your time every week to talk about a show you don't like. And, and I, I would not put you in that category, Ken, even though Thank you. you have been a detractor at times. Thank you. Uh, Ken, Ken gets a puss on. <laughs> I've been right. told. Ken, Ken, <laughs> Ken uh, as it's been said, Ken can get a puss on, yeah. but uh, that's that's fine. It's, it's out of it's, love. It, it works. Absolutely out of love. If you can't get a puss on for love, then you know, don't get a puss on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Twin Peaks has taught us anything. It's that. That's the name of the next Nine Inch Nails album, I heard. <laughs> is that is that the nine inch nails album or the nine, the inch, nine inch nails, nails the get a, nine inch nails get a puss on for love it's all zz top covers <laughs> wow so all right so we were talking about heroism we were talking about um you know whether uh cooper is effectual certainly gordon uh cole seems not to be very effectual um uh it was was that about to segue into something for you, Kyle? I feel like it was, but maybe not. 
No, I, I have the only the only thing I really have at this point is like, you know, uh, half an hour where y'all can each go make a sandwich while I articulate my theory of how it all ties together. Well, I could go for a sandwich. <laughs> well, I, Kyle, that's cool. But can we interrupt you if we want? Um, yeah, you or can do, do that. You, do you feel like you have to go? All right. Yeah. You can do that. Why, why, why don't you go for? Why don't you go for it? And uh, we'll hear Kyle's summation. If if I, uh, you know, it, it'll be like closing argument. I'm not going to raise an objection unless I really need to. Yeah. Okay. So you, it'll it'll be more like oral argument before an appellate court. You you three can interrupt me at any time with with any questions. Is how that. Yeah. Except we'll be more. We'll be closer to the Clarence, not all the way to the Clarence Thomas side, but closer to the Clarence Thomas side. We'll we'll, we'll be restrained. Okay. All right. Um, uh, again, we've, I've tried to talk about, which we, means I'm, which, which literally means I'm watching porn right now. <laughs> yes. Right. I'm just going to watch pornography the entire time you're speaking, uh, in order to emulate justice. Thomas. I, I think that, I think that can only help you. Okay. Um, uh, again, we were talking about, uh, part 18, you know, I tried to play along and treat it on its own terms, but, uh, as I'd indicated, uh, when we discussed part 17, I believe that Nido is Judy. And that from the moment Dale sees Nido in the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station and the telltale big dreamhead Cooper Super appears over the action in Frank's office, Judy is tricking Coop back into the dream state into which she tricked him before in part three. When the lights dim and Gordon and Cooper call out to one another, I think reality is intruding in a way the audience can perceive directly for the final time before Dale descends fully into the dream. And after that, every scene we see featuring original recipe Cooper is contained wholly within Dale's unconscious mind. Uh, This, I believe, explains everything that happens in the last 90 minutes of Twin Peaks The Return. It explains the dominance of dream logic in the progression of the plot, up to and including the recreation of the convenience store slash Dutchman's hallway slash stairway sequence that J.R. previously and accurately described as looking like a nightmare. It explains the recurrence of scenes we know Dale Cooper has dreamt before, Mike reacting, excuse me, reciting the Firewalk With Me poem, an older Dale waiting in the red room, Laura whispering terrible revelations to Dale. It explains the otherwise inexplicable shifts in scene and nomenclature that Dale seems to take in stride, up to and including his blasé acceptance of a murdered man in the middle of Carrie's living room. It explains Cooper's erratic and strangely detached behavior, up to and including his uncharacteristic and indifferent carelessness with firearms behind the counter at the Odessa Diner. It also explains, more importantly, the two dominant themes of Cooper's extended and externally directed dream. On the one hand, Judy maintaining a constant presence so she can keep watch on Cooper and exercise control over the course of his dream. And on the other hand, Cooper's reason attempting to break through the fog and bring him back to conscious awareness. And I think this ties in actually to Jeff's point about Cormac McCarthy and the uh, the unconscious uh, minds functioning that uh, it doesn't really use words with us so much. It uses these images that are, are intended to stay with us. These are the competing forces at work. They're vying for the upper hand. And it's this, not the expected face-off between the Good Dale and Mr. C that we expected, but never actually got this is what's ultimately the final battle between the forces of the white and black lodges can cooper after his courage has been perfected by his time in the red room and his prior passage through his waking dream state as dougie 
overcome the original ancient evil of Judy by escaping from this trap. Judy is with him every step of the way. She's assuming multiple forms, but because she is the mother who gave birth to the evil that men do, she invariably assumes a female form, as she did as the young lady from The Missing Pieces and as Nido earlier in Twin Peaks The Return. So in the dream, she appears to Dale as Diane, one or maybe both of them, as the waitress in the diner, as the driver of the car that tailgates Cooper on the highway, and as the current owner of the Palmer house. Uh, Given the gender fluidity of the Dutchman's, where Bosomy Woman was played by a man, and the jumping man wore Sarah Palmer's face beneath the mask, I don't even rule out the possibility that the jumping man on the stairs in Part 17 may have been Judy lurking in the dream as well. But in any case, at every turn, Judy is watching him and directing him back toward Laura, or to the image of Laura, so that he can replay again and again his doomed efforts to save a girl who died more than 25 years ago. She dredges up dreams Cooper has had before. She exploits his memories. Cooper relives his experiences exiting the Red Room, but with a twist this time. Judy, who this time is disguised as the evolved arm that originally bore a tattoo that read, Mom, she steers him toward Laura, the little girl who lived down the lane. And this reliance on using Coop's memories explains the absence of the double R to go sign when Dale and Laura, or rather Richard and Carrie, arrive in Twin Peaks, because this is the double R as Dale remembers it, not as it now is. Now, although he's asleep, Dale's brain knows better. As his somnolent self descended to dwell within the dream, his waking consciousness drowsily acknowledged that the past dictated the future just before he nodded off. His silenced reason endeavors constantly to break through into the dream in order to force him back up to awareness. Cooper continuously sends these messages in bottles to himself. We see it in Mike's befuddlement at the Dutchman's. We hear it in Philip Jeffrey's otherwise incoherent statement that this is where you'll find Judy. The only person he finds when he gets back to 1989 is Laura. It explains Philip's pointed exhortation, Cooper, remember, which sounds a lot like Mike's wake up. It's even visually represented in the motel room in the form of the figure eight and the marble that moves inside it. Within the figure eight, the marble is flipped over to the other side, then it shifts back to where it began, signaling to Dale both what has happened to get him here and what has to happen to get him back. The small ball also looks like the seed into which a person is reduced, representing Coop himself, which we know from part 16 he's able to recognize. This, by the way, is a clue for the audience as well, because in this this show about doubling, we see in a figure eight something that was explained to us in part 16. Finally, regarding the figure eight itself, we know Cooper is a great admirer of the Dalai Lama. So, of course, when trying to guide his unconscious mind to a literal awakening into enlightenment, his reasoning brain would direct his dream along the eightfold path of Buddhism. Likewise, when Cooper relives slightly altered versions of his memories, important differences emerge. When his unconscious mind takes him back through his exit from the Red Room in the premiere, Judy alters events so that the evolved arm, which looks like nothing so much as an acetylcholine neuron firing high-voltage impulses, speaks of the little girl who lived down the lane, but reason intrudes when that selfsame arm then poses the challenging question, is it? to make him think about it and ask himself if that's really what's happening here. 
When Cooper dreams of awakening as Richard in the wrong motel room and driving away in the wrong car, his reason tries to warn him who's behind it by attaching the name Judy's to the diner. When Dale is waiting in Carrie's living room, evidently unaffected by all the oddities around him, a ringing phone intrudes yet is never answered. This is Coop's awareness calling him in the most literal way possible within the confines of his delusion. During the drive to Twin Peaks, Laura repeatedly is the voice of reason and remembrance, calling Cooper's attention to Judy following in the car behind and making comments that are calculated to call to his mind the recollection of his meeting with the fireman at the start of part one. I tried to keep a clean house. It is in our house now. It's a long way. You are far away. So who then wins in the end? In the very first episode of this podcast, I mentioned the article I'd published in Wrapped in Plastic in 1997, in which I called upon David Lynch to give Twin Peaks one of what I believed were his typical unconventional happy endings, and I believe he gave us one of those here. Because up until now, Cooper's gone along with the dream logic of everything that's happened. He's been stoically accepting Laura's disappearance in the woods, his and Diane's time jumps, Laura's new identity, the general weirdness of everything that's occurring around him. But at the very end of Part 18, his reason breaks through. His confusion indicates that he finally recognizes that this makes no sense, and that awareness begins his ascent back toward consciousness exactly the way it really happens when a person awakens from a dream. Now, how do we know this is actually what's happening? Because we previously saw Dale Cooper waking up after being tricked into a dangerous dream state by Judy in her form as Nido. How did that unfold? In part 15, a statement made within the hallucination caught Cooper's attention, and this first stirring of conscious awareness was followed by a flicker of electricity, the lights going out, and the blonde woman who was with him screaming. This time, we're looking at it from the inside, but exactly the same sequence seeps down into the dream from the real world outside. There's a flicker of the electricity that Mike mentioned in The Dutchman's in another instance of reason attempting to break through. The lights go out, this time in the Palmer house, and a blonde woman, in this case Carrie, screams, arresting his wandering attention and snapping him back to full awareness. This methodically repeated sequence is as sure a sign as it is possible for us to get from our perspective within the dream that Dale Cooper once again is waking up and that Judy has been defeated. So the question, what year is this, isn't the new How's Annie. It's the new Get Gordon Cole. Since we're living inside the dream that is ending, the screen fades to black before we're able to see it, but the unseen next scene of Twin Peaks The Return is Dale Cooper's triumphant reawakening. What follows outside our observation is the perfect inversion of the frustration of the closing moments of the season two finale. Cooper awakened there in room 315 of the Great Northern with Sheriff Harry Truman beside him to the realization that evil had been victorious. He awakens here, having been given the key to room 315 of the Great Northern by Sheriff Frank Truman, with the knowledge that good has won out in the end. Given the juxtaposition of the dimming lights in both the Sheriff's Station and the Palmer House, maybe what Judy portrays with horror within the dream, Cooper and Cole calling out to one another in fear, plays out in reality upon Dale's awakening as two old friends greeting one another in love. Maybe what actually occurs in reality is, Gordon! Cooper! 
or JR for your benefit, uh, who knows, maybe they even speak as Duke to Spice Miner and Coop proclaims the sleeper has awakened. But either way, Agent Cooper's experience at the end of season three is the opposite of Audrey Horn's. She awakens from a moment of idyllic fantasy into a harsh reality, while Dale departs from unconscious tragedy to conscious triumph. And then the scene after that, of course, is Cooper correctly following the fireman's clues to the Richard Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California, but we'll save that for season four. <laughs> like that you're not willing to abandon that theory yet, Kyle. I appreciate that. <laughs> Masterfully done, Kyle. I mean, amazing. Uh, you should, you need to email Adam Curtis right now. He's He is ready to make the documentary about Twin Peaks. I just need you here to hear you say, and then an interesting thing happened. Right, <laughs> and you'll be you'll be ready. You'll 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 be good to go. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, nothing you say is something that I can dispute, and this is part of the nature of the show, right? Yeah, that's right. That it can support all these different readings. Yeah, there are a lot of really good ways of looking at it that that all do add up to a considerable extent. I don't pretend for a moment that the explanation that I prefer is the only one, or even that it's inherently better than any of yours. It's the one that I like. It's, you know, David Lynch talking about the beauty of leaving it abstract. I I see truth in it that way. I I see the truth in the way you look at it too. And, and I think that's cool, particularly in this era of disputatious uncivil discourse that we can all look at this differently and say, yeah, I think that makes sense. I, I buy that. That's good. That's good thinking there. I I, yeah, I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, me too. And it certainly makes a lot of sense. Uh, what what you say there. I mean, I could try to pick out little details and things that I think don't match in keeping with what you were saying about how much like Lost Highway, all the puzzle pieces are never going to fit in to play Kyle. But I don't. I don't think that would be particularly fun. Um, did you know there's a book, by the way, based on an art exhibition that's called David Lynch: The Unified Field. Um, I did not I just feel that because this is your unified field theory, right? Uh, exactly. Two, yeah. Right. I, I I think you should be in the acknowledgments, even if that book was written before you. Uh, came up with that. It just <laughs> just seems right. Right. Like it's somebody, another timeline. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fine. Exactly. That's He's right. being retroactively ripped off. Um, no, I think I think that's very cool. Um, you know, e- even if there are details that I would interpret in ways that that sort of don't match that, I think. Um, to me, I, I resist dream interpretations fundamentally, right? I resist something that uh, says, well, we're, what we're watching here sort of doesn't count. And right. I totally recognize that in this show, uh, it makes a lot more sense because we are, it's, we are the dreamers who live inside the dream. You know, we, we, we live in a dream. Like it's, it's come up a hundred different times and it's David Lynch's whole aesthetic process. And they've made nine different documentaries about how he thinks. So in, in this particular show, it makes sense. But I, I do feel like it seems like it, uh, takes away from, our obligations, maybe, as viewers to try to piece together details if we just say that this uh, exists in a dream. Actually, let me let me let me reverse that a little bit. It's it's not that we don't have to do the hard work if it exists in a dream. It's that we're doing a different kind of work. Um, and maybe what you're doing is very similar to what I'm doing, too, because I absolve myself from trying to put together all the narrative details by saying, well, really, I don't care about the narrative level on which this exists, right? Like, you've done Plot a great so job of bourgeois. piecing together... Right. Yeah. So you've said I've pieced together a narrative that works for me that relies on, um, 
you know, this all being Cooper's dream at one point. And um, I would say, well, I resist using the out of of depicting some portion of this as Cooper's dream when, when we haven't been given that information by the show itself, right? Um, but if you asked me what I do instead, I would say, well, I ignore the narrative, and I just talk about the levels on which this works aesthetically and the ways in which I think the show is speaking to me artistically without right. too much regard for the narrative at all. So I'm probably doing the same thing that you're doing fundamentally when I when I try to analyze it, right? I, I do also, though, resist the notion that, you know, you can piece together what follows outside our observation, this uh, this this notion that, like, he's going to wake up and then this other thing is going to happen, right? I just fundamentally think what happens after the work of art concludes is that the work of art concludes. You know, the, the rest of it is just sort of wish fulfillment. And by the way, I, I'm very glad that you have a lens that allows you to um, reconcile this uh, with the end of season two, because I know we were all very worried, right? Like, right. there was the whole house Kyle, right? How's Annie? How's Kyle? Like, we were all very concerned that this was going to be so ambiguous um, and arty or whatever else or unsatisfying that you would be just as angry as you were for quite a long time after uh, season two or maybe longer, right? right. So, uh, I, d- I don't mean to, to criticize by saying that's, uh, that's wishful from it. Just to me, I... I- I tend to view any anything you have to imagine happening after the art as sort of um, not a not a piece of the of, of the thing you should be considering. Like my wife directed theater, ran theater companies for a while, um, and she directed a play about a relationship between two people um, back in in Cleveland back in the day. And I remember my mother coming out of it and insisting on having a conversation with me about whether the characters got together in the end. Right. Like she was like, after the play, do they get married? Do you, do you think they get married? And I was right. like, well, after the play, uh, they go back into the dressing room and change and go to the a- cast right. party. Like, I, I, I've seen what they do after. What do you mean? Like, like you know, f- fun Fundamentally, nothing happens to me. You know, you, you just sort right. of take the, the work on its own terms is, is right. my approach always. So yeah, those Twin would Peaks be the reasons. And then Kyle MacLachlan went back to making wine. That's how, that's yeah, how for sure. he resolved yeah. it. He exited <laughs> pursued by a bear. But, but I, I can, but I was yeah. going to say, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, finish your, yeah. No, uh, ju- no, just that. So those are the reasons why, you know, I, I sort of reject those um, interpretations when they occur to me, but they're not reasons for, you know, shooting down your use of them, right? I just, I, I tend to push them aside because it's not the lens that I use, you know? Right. And Ken, I was going to say, I don't think most people are like you. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, I, so I true like for lot, so many reasons. Yeah, yeah, but I do feel like a lot of people do wonder those thoughts and aren't comfortable with ambiguous or open endings. And one of the things I wanted to kind of ask everyone about was, okay, so we do get, I guess, in 17 and 18, a resolution of some of the central storylines, you know, uh, the ones that I think and we'd all kind of predicted that, you know, something along the lines of, you know, Cooper reawakening, uh, Cooper and Laura would be important. The Mr. C story, uh, we could kind of see where some of the different threads of Dougie, you know, uh, and, uh, the blue rose task force and, uh, you know, the Mitchum brothers, and Mr. C's kind of quest, all those things would kind of come together. And to some extent, we got a resolution of those in 17 and 18. But Kyle put together, and I think he sent it out, you know, on our, our insanely long thread of messages from the last four months related to the show, a list of uh, shit that didn't mean shit, I think is what you called it, uh, Kyle. Yes. yes. You know, at the after, you know, and so it was basically a, a huge list of all the unresolved storylines you know uh everything from 
the people who showed up at the roadhouse once to bigger, you know, things like what happened, you know, to Audrey, uh, what happened to Becky, um, you know, what happened, why was red kind of entered, you know, like, like questions like that, that just didn't come up at all in 17 and 18. Uh, and that I think, you know, Ken, you had been even as early, I felt like as like episode five or six, had been preparing us for this and discussing this possibility. Uh, But I was wondering kind of how everyone felt, you know, about that, that these, you know, maybe some of these will be referred to in Mark Frost's final dossier, but I think uh, Sabrina Sutherland, the producer of the show, she did like a interview earlier this week. And she said that that's Frost's book. It's not Lynch's book, you know, and that Lynch has nothing to do with it. And that it's Frost's interpretation um, of things. So I was just kind of wondering you know, cause, cause I was thinking about my own need for resolution and I think I'm more like you can, I'm more comfortable with things being open, uh, and, uh, like, like ambiguity and kind of prefer it. Uh, but then I also, we do seem to have a lot of people, this kind of, we want stories to be resolved, uh, and we want things to be tied up. Uh, Lynch obviously isn't like that. And I don't know if Frost, we always say Frost is, maybe he isn't. Uh, but I was curious what what you guys thought about all the storylines that were not resolved in the finale. So anybody? Yeah, but Jeff, I got trapped too, right? Like I didn't maintain my uh, standing as the person who thinks plot is so bourgeois. I got wrapped up in a bunch of these storylines and I put predictions up um, as to what was going to happen plot-wise. Like I didn't even treat our assignment to put up predictions on Facebook uh, in a way consistent with the stance I took post-episode eight that made me gleeful and made me remember the way I like to approach this kind of, you know, pure cinema or whatever. I I was like, oh, I think Nido is going to be really important to solving the mystery and all this. Like what I should have said is a a prediction about what happens in the plot or the narrative in the finale is completely missing the point of what Lynch wants us to do, right? But I I, I might have even been the one who suggested we put predictions up on uh, on Facebook, right? So as soon as we started watching the two part finale, I was like, I I got trapped. You know, I, I got stuck doing this thing that fundamentally um I, I I should have been sounding an alarm could be sort of beside the point, you know? And is that really the metaphor for the whole underlying enterprise that Gordon Cole is talking about to Albert and Tammy at the beginning of part 17 when he says there's this long running plan and it's, it's designed to trap, you know, this, this malevolent spirit that, that some have surmised, you know, represents for Lynch the idea of certainty, you know, the thing that he hated the most about the original series is that the ABC executives ultimately were able to force him to resolve the mystery of Laura Palmer's murder, which is the thing that he never wanted to do. He wanted to leave that out there. And is, is that really, you know, the challenge that he's presenting to us of don't, don't do that. You know, don't worry if the plan is working. Don't worry if the plan is on time. Just enjoy this. This is a, a journey. It is not a destination because the destination isn't going to be what you think it's going to be. It isn't going to be what you want it to be. It can still be something that you enjoy and appreciate and that will, in fact, stay with you and work better for you than if I tied everything up neatly with a bow. And Ken, you even asked us as we were clearly running out of time, as it was clear that there was no way we could get all of this stuff wrapped up. And I don't think any of us ever thought 
all of the Roadhouse stuff was ever going to go anywhere. <laughs> I think we might have thought some of it might have gone somewhere. Um, certainly, we probably attached more significance to finding Laura Palmer's diary pages or the things the log lady said to Hawk than, than we actually had borne out. But, you know, you had even asked, okay, how, how mad will you be if we don't get bad coop, you know, if, if Dougie doesn't wake up and become good coop and we don't get bad coop and good coop in the same room together, if those storylines never converge. And I said, yeah, I'm going to be pretty mad if that doesn't happen. Well, that did happen in a only semi-satisfying way. Um, in a Dragon Ball I'm, Z I'm, episode. Yeah, that's right. And and I'm I'm okay with how it ended. You know, I, I said at the time, I woke up that next Monday morning feeling like, I really wish that 17 had been the last episode and it had it had ended there with Laura's disappearance. That would have been ambiguous. That would have been unsettling, but it would have been satisfying. And then we went in this whole new direction. And, and at the time, just what in the hell did I just watch? But what in the hell did I just watch is the sensation you're supposed to have at the end of anything David Lynch does. I mean, you've had that thought walking out of every movie theater and, and turning off every television show that he's ever done. So it, it was it was stupid not to expect that, although I didn't. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, I'm I'm okay with it. I wasn't immediately okay with it. I took time to get okay with it. I may, a month from now, feel very differently about it from the way I feel currently, which is quite different by several phases from how I felt when I was sitting there on Sunday night, you know, staring at that black screen. But, uh, yeah, ultimately, I'm, I'm good with it. I'm, I'm, I am comfortable with the degree of ambiguity we got, but it took a while to get to that place. Yeah, it's amazing because we, you and I had both posited for a while that there would be some uh, 100% sum, right? Whereby if right. you liked it 50, I would like it 50, I would like it the other 50. If you liked right. it 70, I would like it 30. And what ended up happening was you really learned to just love the dog and engage right. with it on its own terms uh, and enjoy the finale as as much as uh, as anything else. Uh, and even more, it sounds like, than, than the finale of the original series. Uh, oh, absolutely. I, uh, yeah, and I would have thought in in a world where um, it was this uh, unfocused on narrative, this focused on pure aesthetics and driving scenes and long stares and uh, just enjoying the presence of Lynch's favorite actors, that I would have been sitting back with my arms folded, like giggling in glee, that it would have been, you know, two hours of Ken's Vindication Corner or something. Right. Right. Um, but uh, that's why I say I feel like I got trapped because I had we had cherry pie like like JR said, yeah. um, you know, yeah. JR was here. We had we had folks over. Folks were asking us questions as semi experts on this thing, uh, and we were like, uh, "That's going to be a really long answer to who the jumping man is." <laughs> I don't know. I can't really. We went, "Oh, the jumping man." People were like, "Who's that?" We're like, "Well, I can't really right now." Um, but you know, I we want had a separate episode just where I discuss the jumping man at length for seven to nine hours. So. That'd be right, episode nineteen point five. Yeah, right. Nineteen point five. Jeff's 19. jumping man 7. corner. 5, right. <laughs> yeah, but. Um, we, we'll call it Jeff jumps to conclusions about the jumping man. Okay. Anyway, uh, so we, yeah, we had people here. We've talked about what was going to happen. Um, 
<laughs> somebody else is going to ding us for dad jokes. I just realized it's totally yes. my fault. Um, but uh, we had Cherry Pie. We, we fell victim to the whole what do you think is going to happen thing. Like if I had watched the Sopranos finale, JR sort of said this about the perils of being over here despite um, the quality of the hosting. Um, but if I had been in a group setting for the Sopranos finale, it would have been really different. I watched it at home with the lights off. Um, I think we watched it around the feet of my sleeping father because he was staying over on a, a sleep sofa that we had in our tiny San Francisco apartment because he was in town for a day. So he conked out and we sat around his sleeping feet and watched the end of it really quietly. And then I was like, that was dope. That was super great. That was super exciting. But if I'd gone to some Sopranos finale party, like, you know, I could have gotten sucked into any number of ways of betting on who was going to die and whatever else. Right. right. So, yeah. I, I, here, here's the I, I thing. Too, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. I'm go sorry. Ahead. I was just going to say, I thought about the Sopranos, you know, finale and you know, that seemed very audacious at the time, but it, it did kind of seem like child's play compared to the Twin Peaks, the return fa- finale, <laughs> yes. you know? I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, to, so, to I have me, like a short concluding thing, but I, w- I want to make sure everybody else gets their stuff in. So Let me just, the, the one the one final note that I would add on, on this particular point of discussion, I'm not going to run through the whole list of things that wound up not actually mattering, but in terms of the ambiguity, this is this is my takeaway the the three primary unanswered questions that we leave Twin Peaks The Return with having still unanswered are, what year is this, how's Annie, and who killed Laura Palmer? Because we don't actually know now that anybody killed Laura Palmer. And, and that, you know, if you told me going in that I was going to get no resolution on Annie Blackburn whatsoever or even an acknowledgement of her existence, and we were going to get the final scene that we got, and we were going to get unkilling Laura Palmer, and, and, and that was now going to be more ambiguous than it was, I would have told you I was going to hate this. And in fact, took me a while, but yeah, I did ultimately just love the dog. That's great, no, that's, Yeah, that's great. And... um yeah, I, it, it does tie into the thing I was going to say, and it certainly doesn't have to be a final anything. But um, yeah, I, I love the quote that I keep going back to from Angles, who was sort of showrunner for a while in the original series, right? That, that the original Twin Peaks was a show about free-floating grief, and it ends on a note of free-floating grief. And it does seem to be a message no matter, uh, well, to me anyway, it seems like the message is that you're never going to eliminate evil, you're never going to eliminate suffering, you're never going to eliminate grief. Uh, some of the happy ending theories you all have posited, I guess, would would be contrary to that. But to me, it's, it's this idea that there may be infinite recursions of this same experience experience, but the suffering is always going to be there. If you eliminate suffering, you eliminate reality. You eliminate really the premise of the show, right? Uh, that, that you know, free-floating grief is a problem for communities no matter how tight-knit they are, um, and life is to a certain extent suffering. And I, I like your take on it, Kyle, especially because it brings up this other quote um, from Rodley in, in Lynch on Lynch, where he's talking about Mulholland Drive, but in relation to Mulholland Drive, he says, it seems that Lynch has made the very notion of dream versus reality an irrelevant opposition. As a result, the borderline between these two states has been reduced to a badly guarded checkpoint where no one seems to be stamping passports. Right. And I, 
I think I'd go even further than that when it comes to Twin Peaks The Return. I think he's trying to, Lynch and Frost are trying to eliminate the notion that dream and reality are separate states at all. This is the, you know, extreme open borders, no states, no borders, no no dualism at all. It's all streams, spectrums, uh, continua, spectra, continua, Latin plurals, Um, right? Like, life life is more uh, multifarious than that. It's an endless series of of branching out possibilities, not just a war between black and white, good and evil, whatever else. So, you know, the question, who killed Laura Palmer? Well, the answer is complex metaphysical states in equilibria with each other and her really bad father, right? Right. Uh, And how do you prevent Laura Palmer's death? Well, that's the wrong question. You can't prevent it. You're not going to change the equilibrium. The forces are going to be there. The White Lodge and the Black Lodge are going to be there. Garmin Bosey is going to be collected. Um, If you believe the Manichaeans, light particles are forever filtering from the dimension of light into ours and being sucked up by terrible uh, forces. Um, But you can't make the light dimension into this dimension, it's fundamentally impossible. You can't break down the barriers and make the White Lodge into this reality, right? So so what do you do? You know, you you try to do what the evolved Cooper would tell you, right? Treat people in general with more kindness, you know, right. honor life, seek to minimize suffering, treat people kindly. Um, it won't be enough. It's never been enough, but that's not the point, right? The point is that there's honor in the trying and the alternative to trying is worse. Yeah, and that's I like that a lot, um, Ken. And yeah, and it it's I, one of the things you know about to back to the unresolved plot lines. You know, like I I did it at one point. I'm I'm not sure when I abandoned exactly. Maybe it was like around episode like fourteen or fifteen, where I was like, all right, all of these things at the roadhouse and all these other you know red, all these other storylines. Uh, the insurance guy, for instance. Uh, from episode one, <laughs> yeah. uh, the sweeper, uh, they're not all going to be resolved. I mean, I did imagine something like, um, one of my favorite movies is, um, Nicholas rogues, um, don't look now. And then also in his movie walkabout, he has these just bravura editing, you know, sequences at the end of the film where there's this kind of moment of transcendental realization where you see the entire rest of the film in this just crazy, you know, edited sequence. And I, I imagine perhaps some sort of shattering, you know, editing sequence like that, that would take like 20 minutes where everything came together. That's not what happened. Uh, but it did. One of the things it made me think a lot about, you know, which of these storylines I was okay with, which ones I wanted resolution for and kind of, you know, why do, why we seek resolution in, in, in narrative art, you know, and why, uh, yeah, probably cause we don't get it in the rest of our lives. Um, and, uh, but, I also, but I like what you're, I think that if we tied all this up neatly, I I think that wouldn't, it wouldn't accord with how Lynch seems to view reality, you know? And I think what you're talking about, all those, uh, you know, breaking down the checkpoints between all of these states. Uh, And I think one of the ways I did account eventually for the roadhouse scenes in particular is like, you know, it's, it's the parts of the dream that may not seem relevant, but, um, and maybe there were whole storylines like that, like the Audrey one, for example. And for that one, for me, that actually reached her waking up at the end. That was a great ending, you know, to that. Uh, but, um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I, I was, I became comfortable with all of these, this irresolution. And one of the things, the wonderful things about Twin Peaks to return for me was that I guess it, it seemed to make me more comfortable with that state of, 
irresolution and just sort of accept all these storylines in a way. And I, and I do think that um, one thing that the show did was just kind of on, on some level, I'm not sure if I would say make kind of recap TV recap culture irrelevant, uh, but uh, make it, you know, I thought what we did was really useful uh, and I think it was useful for us and it was useful for our listeners, but on, on some level, it kind of did defeat uh, on some level how it's normally done. Yeah. Yeah. Would that Nicholas Rogue thing you were envisioning have looked more like episode eight? Do you think Jeff, like that kind of montage? Yeah. 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 That's what I was kind of imagining. There'd be something where everything from the whole season would come together. That was one of the only ways I could imagine it. But yeah, that's, that's, that was what I was. Yes. Thinking something like episode eight. Then I really would have been sitting back with my arms folded, just giggling in glee, right? If we'd gotten something with, with that level of bravura um, craftsmanship, I would have been. Not not that this wasn't well-crafted, right? It just wasn't ostentatious like 8 was. Yeah, it was very singular, you know what I mean? It, it was like on some level one of the most focused things he's ever done. Yeah, and we did kind of anticipate it when we had the conversation about stillness and slowness and Tarkovsky and drones and stuff, right? I mean, you kind of got that ball rolling, and then I tried to pick it up with the with the beverage corner on on DJ Screw. But you know that in a way we were kind of ready for that. Um, but we, I still think it made it hard to appreciate. It was hard for me to appreciate in the moment. Right. Okay, this is where it gets entirely embarrassing for me, and I can only apologize to all of our listeners. At this point in the episode, I was basically unconscious and summoned back into the world of the living with somewhat disastrous results. Yeah, so I think we're done. I think I think this is episode 19. This is our uh, attempt to put everything together. And yeah, I mean, we're going to come back with uh, <laughs> the final dossier. But here we are. Yeah, I mean, I think you've more than earned the last word if you want it, JR. Yeah, the absolutely. million hours of work you put into putting this thing together. I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful for, for Kyle, for Ken, for Jeff, for all of you, for the hours and hours you've contributed. I, can, I cannot express my gratitude adequately. Well, thank you, Jr. You're the one who got the ball rolling, and, and after we all signed off uh, uh, every week, you uh, you're the one who did the hard work of freedom by uh, by uh, editing it and putting the music on there, and uh, you know dropping the iced tea every time I mentioned some, you know, <laughs> yeah. green and the maestro. getting it we'll out see. there. So we'll see. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, thank I, you I think so people, much. Here. Yeah, I think people probably don't realize exactly what the division of labor is on the podcast. And the answer is, JR does almost everything. Like, right? Like, we show up and we do our bits and we prep a little bit for the podcast and we try to be witty or interesting and we um, send texts back and forth with each other and we um, occasionally do a recap. But JR does everything else from hosting the thing editing, to, to recapping right, yeah. to editing for hours and hours and hours and taking out all the parts where my ice and my glass is clinking. Um, and I'm ex- well, okay, making, not bagels. I'm making a bagel, which was a martini, by the way, um, to uh, to putting an incredibly, incredibly smart music choices at the beginning and the end every week. So, yeah, I, I and, echo all of it. And it's just and great. it's and really kind of particular recording, re-recording your entire. Oh, my God. In a seamless right, way. Right. In a way that <laughs> I, can, I still Absolutely. can't even conceive that you did. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you guys are amazing. And this, this would not happen. But for the fact that I happen to 
in my personal life know a handful of people who are really smart and obsessive about David Lynch and Twin Peaks, and somehow they have the time to watch the show, participate in the podcast. And, you know, I will willingly admit I'll take the bullet, I'll take the hit. My circle of friends that love Twin Peaks are not as diverse as I would love them to be. I would love to know women and people of color who are <laughs> as uh, obsessive about Twin Peaks as I am. I'm really confident and happy with the group of people we have. Uh, you guys have been amazing. And uh, I've had too much gin. I don't. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I was well, going to ask that after we that's finished ideal. recording. That's, that's exactly the. If you right needed us to send somebody to come uh, pick you up or anything. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> okay. So we uh, right. we should also just briefly though, uh, in case anybody has, has listened this far and this all makes it onto record, uh, thank the really surprisingly intelligent and numerous people that have actually bothered to listen to this podcast, yes. which is a constant shock to me that it's there are people who didn't know us personally reviews. beforehand. Uh, that, that's yeah, the exactly. Not to me. Not, Right, not just the anonymous cowards that gave us however many stars on iTunes, but like people who wrote real iTunes reviews, most of them very good, people who gave us legitimately good feedback, people who introduced us to new Australian slang phrases, um, DM'd us, you know, uh, came came at us from a hundred different kinds of social media um, because it's a multifarious world of communication out there and just let us know mostly that they were really interesting people with interesting thoughts and, you know, some of them threw stuff out there that were cool theories we didn't get to use and and some we probably forgot to give shout outs to because they influenced our thinking, but just all really great people who uh, improved our lives on a day to day and week by week basis when we sent each other like, oh, my God, somebody posted another really smart comment. Look at that. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Amen, Ken. Double, yeah, that's great. No, for sure. Our, our listeners are great. Uh, far, far, far beyond what I could have ever imagined. I thought it'd just be like a handful of like five to ten people that I know in real life that would actually listen to this. But it's been amazing. Amazing. So we're, we're I, on. I'll stop yeah, shouting out people. We're about five hours into this. This has been a marathon recording session. Yeah. It's astonishing. Adrian is leaving work at like 1230 after a golf outing that's taken all day. And I told her we were still recording. She could not believe it. I have to say, <laughs> well, what? So we, are we stopped now? We, originally, JR, you said it would be yeah, eight yeah, hours. Yeah, I think we're very close to right, eight night, hours. Good yeah. night. Goodbye, everybody. It's good 19. Night. Wait, are we, am I pressing stop? Are we stopping? Okay, I'm pressing stop. Pressing stop as well. Okay, lest we end the podcast on those auspicious notes, I wanted to provide a few and slightly more sober thoughts on Twin Peaks The Return. We spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about plot, recapping the details we thought were important, tracking the intricate web of characters and mythology in the show in the larger Twin Peaks universe of the prior two seasons, Fire Walk With Me, and canonically questionable books, The Secret History, The Secret Diary, and the Autobiography of Special Agent Dale Cooper. In a word, the stuff that we can largely attribute to Mark Frost. And I think we've done a great job, and I hope you've enjoyed all of that. But for me, the real pleasure of this remarkable 18-part bit of television has just been watching it listening to it, experiencing David Lynch at what I'd argue is the height of his power 
in creating a world and conveying visual and aural impressions that bring us into direct contact with the sublime. From the absolutely mesmerizing shot of Manhattan in pristine golden electrical light in the first episode, to the stark genius of part eight, to Richard Horn electrocuted on that rock, the show never failed to keep my attention and stir my mind and my heart. It was also frequently hilarious. I've said to my friends that I could not imagine ever doing something like this podcast for anything other than this season of Twin Peaks. I've been enraptured from those first four episodes, and doing the podcast has been a labor of love. I flailingly tried and failed in earlier a few weeks ago when we recorded this. Uh, I failed to express my eternal appreciation for Kyle, Ken, and Jeff for all the work that they've done in making this podcast something absolutely worth doing. I've been lucky to attract people smarter and more articulate than me to make this podcast something much greater than the sum of its parts, especially my part. And thanks again to our thousands. I can't believe there's so many listeners around the world who have deeply enriched our own experience of doing this and have reinforced our hunch that we are doing something worthwhile. Thank you. I'll try to remember the words of Garland Briggs. Achievement is its own reward. Pride obscures it. Good night, everybody, and thanks for listening.